summons scorekeepers, lend me your earbuds. <laughs> hey, what's up, y'all? Uh, this is Rocky, um, and it is yesterday, Thursday, July 8th. Um, just wanted to come um, at the top of the show to y'all, and um, actually, funny story, um, Lee and Paige and I are all on vacation this week, so we are coming at you with a bit of an abbreviated episode this week. Um, so first, we uh, were lucky enough to be joined by our first real live full-time opera singer, um, the amazing Asian-American tenor Andrew Stenson, who has sung all over the world, all over the country, uh, in has been a part of... Uh, Tons of incredible, prestigious uh, productions, including here at Minnesota Opera. Uh, if uh, you know some of you were around for that very cold production of Italian Straw Hat a few <laughs> a few years ago, which we which we do talk about, but he is here to really um, give us a perspective that we haven't had on the show before, which is super exciting for us. Um, you know, somebody who is really um, out there performing um, and sort of navigating um, spaces as a person of color and a performer in this industry. Um, it was really illuminating um, to hear that perspective. And, and I do hope that we um, are able to have more performers on the show and have more music um, for you. So uh, stay tuned for that. And then, <laughs> well, this is where things get a little bit dicey. So you're probably wondering, I mentioned the date because as I, as I, as I said, we are on vacation this week. So we recorded um, both of these segments quite some time ago. And so we were thinking, well, you know, we, we have to have a pure black joy because we always have a pure black joy because it's, it is important for us to always, no matter what we are talking about, whether we're talking about something really hard uh, or something really fun and light, um, that we always end the show on a joyful note. Um, and so we were thinking, well, what's something that, you know, is kind of evergreen? Oh, we know the Olympics. Like, nobody, there, there's not going to be any reason for the Olympics to get canceled. There, there won't be any racisms at the Olympics, surely. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so between, you know, the banning of any political statements, including, uh, you know, Black Lives Matter and the banning of the swim caps and the disqualification of the Namibian runners and the various disqualifications on the USA track and field team, including the incredible, amazing Shakari Richardson. Um, well, <laughs> it might sound like we have been living under a rock for the last month. Uh, if you didn't know that we recorded um, that segment uh, quite some time ago. And so uh, we just wanted to, um, you know, keep part of it in because we still do want to um, support the black athletes um, who are competing this year. Um, but, you know, recognizing I'm sure at the top of the next episode, we will be talking about uh, some of the issues that have uh, that have uh, transpired over the last couple of weeks, which are making us really sad. So, you know, there's a lot of talk about not watching the Olympics, boycotting the Olympics. Of course, we we 
appreciate um, those standpoints and completely understand. Um, but also, I believe <laughs> in part of that segment that was cut, I, I did say um, direct quote that if Shikari Richardson does not win a gold medal, I will be heartbroken. And I can say with certainty that I am. So, um, you know, we just want to... I, I, I'm sure I can speak for Paige and Lee when I, when I say that we love you, Shikari, and we are rooting for you no matter what. Um, if there is, <laughs> frankly, if you can, you know, smoke a joint and then go out and run a sub 1100 meters, uh, you deserve all the gold medals. Like, take it from the shot putter and the javelin and the hurdles or whatever and give them all um to that person but you know this is a you know all jokes aside um you know it's a it's a crappy situation um and an even crappier rule and um we are proud of you shikari we love you and the way that you are handling this um unjust decision uh with such grace um, in class, and we can't wait to watch you in your next race. And thank you so much for inspiring us all um, at the trials. And when you get on the track, you are that girl. Um, so just wanted to uh, <laughs> just say all that up top. And uh, I'm going back to my vacation. All right, y'all. <laughs> See you in a couple weeks and enjoy the show. Bye bye. hearing right now are the uh, the beautiful beautiful singing of our next guest uh mr andrew stenson who is uh quickly building a reputation as one of the united states most exciting young tenors with a brilliant tone and artistic intellect and superb portrayals of a variety of roles uh, he is an alum of a number of uh prestigious young opera or young artist opera programs here uh, in the U.S., including Glimmerglass and Seattle Opera and uh, the Met and the Marola program um, at uh, in at a San Francisco Opera. Um, he has performed all over the place uh, in the last few years at Lyric Opera of Chicago, San Francisco Symphony, uh, the Wexford Festival Opera, Dallas. 
Philadelphia Orchestra, St. Paul Chamber Orchestra, Opera Colorado, all over the place <laughs> <laughs> and internationally as well. Um, but many of you uh, Minnesota Opera fans would likely remember him um, from 2019's uh, The Italian Straw Hat, um, where he uh, played the put-upon Fadinard running around town <laughs> trying to get that hat. <laughs> and which I remember as the coldest experience of my life. I don't know about you, <laughs> Andrew. I know you are a Minnesota native, so maybe you're used to this. But I, I love Minnesota winter. I Do love you? it when it's really? negative oh, wow. <laughs> I love when you can't survive for more than 30 seconds outside the windshield so bad. I love digging cars out of snow. Uh, I, I don't know what it is. I think it's so satisfying. Are you <laughs> seriously? But like, but that, that was beyond the pale. Lee, you don't, you don't, you weren't here no. when that happened. <laughs> but it was like, <laughs> I mean, it was, cause what was so funny about that was that for whatever reason, the promo for Italian Straw Hat is like back when I was communications manager. It is the number one most viewed YouTube video on the Minnesota Opera channel, like by a mile. So we were like, this is going to be amazing. This is going to be such a hit. Everyone's super into this. And like, the day of like, like opening night, it was just like 30 below zero. And, oh, God. And the governor was like, nobody leave your homes. You're all going to die. <laughs> just like, okay, well, that's that. <laughs> we still had like a half house that night. You so, did. I was, I was very pleasantly surprised. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, Minnesotans, they don't let a little bit of cold stop them. Clearly. Yeah. <laughs> Especially once you get used to it. You're like, this isn't going to stop my life. <laughs> I suppose I will be the outlier. <laughs> yes. Well, I've been gone long enough, too, that when I come back during the winter, it, it it's you go outside and it's petrifying. Oh, like God. it stuns you in your tracks sometimes which is really fun still. <laughs> but what's kind of amazing though, is like now when I go home to DC and it's like 45 degrees in January and everybody's like in their parkas and I'm just like walking around in a t-shirt and I'm like, oh my God, what are they doing? <laughs> well, Andrew, we want to thank you so much for being here, for being on the show with us. And you have sung in so many different places. Um, you know, you, your career has taken off in so many ways, but as an Asian American um, opera singer, like how has that, ra your, your racial or ethnic identity shaped your career journey in opera? Oh my gosh, um, where do I begin? Um, <laughs> when I started out, uh, I, I thought, you know, I, I, I've been told, you know, you have, you have a lyric voice, you know, some people thought I was going to sing Verity, some people thought I should sing Mozart, but I started thinking, oh, maybe it'll just be really easy if I break my way in, way in being a character tenor. And um, sometimes when you start to reinforce certain stereotypes, people really love to, uh, mm -hmm. you know, grab it by the neck and run with it. Mm -hmm. um, and so that I had people saying like, oh, well, you're, you're short, you're Asian, you can sing like character stuff and like some short tenor roles. And I, I embraced that for a, a solid couple of years, I think, through grad school. And then I, in a random audition, I uh, got cast, uh, I got the Santa Fe Young Artist Program in 2009. And I remember coaching the Petrarch sonnets uh, 
in a room adjacent to kind of like the administrative rooms and David Holloway, who's the director at the time, barges into my coaching and he's like, you are a lyric tenor. Shuts the door. <laughs> well, <laughs> okay. And, and because of you know being fortunate enough to get that experience at Santa Fe, um, I, I auditioned for uh, the, it was Glimmerglass Opera at the time in 2010 and they were doing the Tenderland. And I thought mm. there's absolutely no way in hell that they're going to cast, you know, a yellow kid in this, this white, white, white heartland opera. And so I sang character stuff. I would sing like Frisch some Kampf and take my shoe off and wave it angrily at the end and have this whole thing. And then they asked me to sing, I had Romeo on my list too. And they asked me to sing that. I'm like, okay, that's weird. I just want to sing Basilio, but sure. Great. Mm. Um, and then I get a call from Don Marazzo a few weeks later. And it's like, we really enjoyed your audition. We'd like to offer you Martin the Tenderland. I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. That was the last thing I was expecting. So um, I had been very fortunate to get lucky early on and have, you know, there's a lot of talk right now about gatekeepers, but I was on the, the positive side maybe of that in certain ways that uh, the right people said that I am a lyric tenor. You know, somebody I auditioned for in 2009 who told me, you know, to do the short tenor repertoire and do character repertoire. I won one of the Tucker study grants in 2011. And I auditioned for them again. And then she was clearly like, oh, of course you're a lyric tenor. Um, so it's interesting how people can get a certain idea in their heads and it takes a lot to change their minds. And it sometimes it takes the influence of other gatekeepers, powerful people, whatever it may be, uh, to change those opinions. And that unfortunately has been a, um, like a, a pretty constant struggle. And needing to prove yourself the next place that you go, you're not just, you know, another, or like the, the short Asian tenor or something, and they have like preconceived notions with that. You have to really kind of like, yes, I'm a lyric tenor. I can be a leading guy. So one of the other things that we've talked a lot about on this podcast has been the idea that as a way of dealing with that really intense gatekeeping, especially for those of us of color, that mentorship and, and sort of lineages of mentorship are really powerful ways of circumventing that. And we have had um, a composer in Kira Okoye, who's been a great mentor to me on, and her mentor, Dr. Adolphus Hailstork, has also been on. And one of my favorite things that happened last month during AAPI Heritage Month was when we had the opportunity to profile a group of Asian American um, artists. Brian Vu actually cited you as being someone who has been so influential to his career. And I would love to hear you talk a little bit more about the role of mentoring for you personally, who has really helped you figure out what it is that you want to do and how do you pay that forward to other folks? You know, it's, it's really interesting when uh, in a lot of panels and discussions with colleagues and other colleagues of color and my Asian colleagues, especially, is that we have not had hardly any role models in the industry coming up. The only people I knew about when I was coming up were Hei Kyung Hong and Sumi Jo. And that was it. Um, there, the, so in, in turn, like the looking for a singer, a tenor of color who has definitely faced adversity, like, you know, Larry Brownlee was my guy coming up. 
And I've been fortunate enough to work with him, to work alongside him, to see a lot of his work, to have many discussions with him. And Larry is a shining example of how to get it done, especially when there are many people in the world who want to say no. Um, Larry, and Larry also happens to be one of the most competitive people I have ever met. Uh, <laughs> and, and boy, that guy likes to win. And he does win. And he's, he's, he's fantastic. But he doesn't make any excuses for himself. He does the work. He's like, I know people are going to be questioning my languages left and right. So I'm just going to become fluent in Italian. You know, I know that people are going to be... <laughs> people are going to be waiting for you to fail at something so they can latch on to something. And he never gives them the opportunity. You know, is there something to work on? Do I need to lose some weight? Do I need to go on a diet? Great. I'll do that. You know, do I need to brush up my language better? Great. I'll do that. You know, et cetera. Do I need to learn how to act better? I'm going to get better at that, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Nothing gets in that guy's way. Mm. And wow. he, and he told a lot of people, who were looking to say no to him. And he made such an overwhelming case that they couldn't, they had to say yes, because he is basically the best in the world. And, and, and I think that's often a huge part of the, the story of, you know, people of color, those individuals who are the first or one of the first like that, that's the thing, right? That's how you combat those arguments around excellence. You just have to run circles around everybody else c note leotine price yeah absolutely i mean <laughs> yeah. i i remember as a kid i went to this very sort of you know quote unquote elite sort of prestigious private school in the dc area and i had this one teacher i remember is my height my 10th grade english teacher and my mom came back from a parent-teacher conference. The only time I've ever heard her refer to anyone as a blue-eyed devil. <laughs> but he just he just hated me on site because I just was like, you know, smart and like driven and sort of interested in the material and in challenging him. And he gave me a C on a paper once that was not a C paper. And that was that moment that I was just like, you know what, I'm going to from now on, like, make everything just unimpeachable. Like you have will have no choice but to give me an A. <laughs> so like that story just completely resonates with me. I'm no Larry Burnley, obviously, but <laughs> maybe I will be. <laughs> the one thing too, the, the, the flip side of that too, is for especially like people of color to trailblaze in this industry, you must not only, you, you must be exceptional mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. sit at, a, at the level playing field. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and that is an incredible burden. I mean, yeah. So much pressure. So much. Yeah. 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 We've talked about that. And I mean, I've, I've heard people in all, all sectors of the performing arts talk about that, even among us administrators as well and, and feeling like there's, you know, there's so few, um, or there's a scarcity, you know, mindset of, you know, what you have to compete for and then having, you know, tough skin because, 
you're you're scrutinized that much more and i was going to ask a different question but now i'm curious <laughs> like what do you do what do you do to stay to stay grounded like with in dealing with that with that pressure or you know what do you what do you come back to to build yourself back up and even if it's other people or or colleagues like what does that look like for you uh, for me personally um, I, you know, I've, I've talked to a lot of colleagues about this stuff too. Everyone in the arts, they have like those handful of experiences, those shows that, um, that for me personally, I always feel like I'm doing my best work and I feel the best uh, at work when I feel like I'm part of a team. Mm -hmm. And that we as an ensemble, a cast, a company, et cetera, et cetera, we can say something with one voice and that everyone feels equal, um, that no person is more important or less important than the other, that we all depend on each other. And knowing that some people have your back and that are able, when, when you can't lift any longer, you know someone else will be able to lift. That is, that is all the comfort in the world as a performer to me, no matter how hard it gets. And that's always the kind of thing, you know, one of the one of the greatest things I felt like I've ever been a part of was to be a part of Candide. Mm -hmm. um, and Candide has like magic powers for some reason. <laughs> um, and it was such an intense show. And you just, the moment Downbeat happened, you were just running, going, going. It was like doing a musical. You just have no time to breathe. You have no time to think of your lines. You maybe have time for a glug of water. And then you just go to the next scene, go to the next scene, you know, and you see it. Uh, because Candy is front and center most of the time, but every other person in the cast is furiously changing, running left and right, moving set pieces, etc. And if something does get moved or something does get locked, somebody could get hurt. And you have a have to have a lot of trust in everyone else as well to make it happen. And when we are just kind of going, 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 and we get to garden at the end, we all take a big pause, we all look out, and we say something together. And that metaphorically, I guess, for the piece, but also from the literal work that we're doing, that the struggle for something like that is worth it when you have people to share that experience with. And so facing these things in certain environments, knowing that you have people in the world who will face those struggles with you, you know, that's like, as we, we continue to develop, develop our Asian community in the industry, you know, Vu was in that showing Candide. And I remember talking like that, um, that panel with Theater Mu, it's, it's such an event for me personally to be in a show with other Asian people that, you know, uh, Kristen Choi is Paquette and she's like, she's like a sister to me. You know, I've just had the opportunity to bond with these people so much and I feel very close to them. And I feel like we are in this fight together and that that's a reason to keep going and a reason to get up in the morning. I hope that answers your question. Sorry, long-winded. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it definitely does. It definitely does. But I've, yeah, experience the same. You know, it makes it it makes a difference when you can. I guess that is one of the benefits of like what we do. You're always doing it with a team, unless you're like severely doing a one-man show, as in you're doing the lighting, <laughs> sound, and everything too, which I have yet to see. I'm sure it's out there. Um, but yeah, same. Like just that you ultimately at the end of the day, like you can't create this piece alone. And so you kind of, you create the community always. Yeah. 
Well, one thing that I think is so interesting that that you know, on this topic of community, you know, I know that for us, definitely, you know, sort of the events of the past year have really created more opportunities for us to sort of be around more Black folks and more Black artists and creating. And do you, do you find that, that you've had that same experience, like that more opportunities have been created for you to work with more Asian artists? Um, I, I still think those opportunities are few and far between. I know mm -hmm. that the Asian artists are starting to mobilize now, seeing also the success of the mobilization from our Black colleagues and the, the difference and the impact that's being made right now. Um, that is very inspiring to us as a community as well. And it's, it's, um, it's great to see like the way being paved and that we know and see what's happening right now, that there is a path to gaining greater equity, to at least at least being seen, to at least address issues in a public forum and get people to listen. And, you know, you have to hope, you know, with everything inside of you, right, that it's not just a paving of the way, but it's also going to be a walk in solidarity, right? Because we are all so adversely affected by these these issues and i think the only real way out of it is if we're all sort of mobilizing around the idea that we're here too you know check your demographics right and mm -hmm. we are creators and we are audience members and we want to see ourselves rep rep represented in the art you know across levels and maybe to that point i'd love to know do you have any advice right for the andrew stinsons who are out there starting their careers or or even contemplating whether or not there is space for me in this art form that i've fallen in love with that is a very good question um i i'm already seeing uh a greater pool now uh just and you know and social media being what it is you get more access to people but i'm seeing a greater pool of like young asian tenors up and coming and people who are really 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 talented um and it's they're they're getting traction they're getting i i think there's still barriers towards opportunity but at the very least i see a bigger pool and i see more faces in ors programs mm -hmm. um and i would tell those people to keep going because i feel like we're we're, we're getting there. We're getting step by step by step. The more of us there are, the more talent there is, the harder it is to deny that there is talent. Um, you know, I'm still waiting to see a generation of Asian headliners at the Met. I'm still waiting to see the Met make the conscious decision to turn an Asian singer into a star. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. You know, but I think I, for like Brian Boot, you know, Brian Boot's got it all. You know, that guy's a great singer. He's a hunk. Like he is the kind of person <laughs> that that could be the face of this moving forward, yeah. I think. Mm -hmm. And we're seeing more and more people pop up. So I, I hope it's only a matter of time. Hunky, hunky, hunky. Hunk of burning love. <laughs> you had me at hunk. <laughs> I wish I could look like that. I don't think any... The amount of years of starving and years of going to the gym would ever make it look like Brian. I am trying. If you could see behind me this this 
pancake breakfast we've been in in the last year. I've been stuck in my <laughs> dumbbells <laughs> doing my best. <laughs> but speaking of, of this, you know, pando that we've been in for so long, you know, it has affected so many facets of society, just broken open the fissures. Um, you know, and of course, we all know, you know, the API community in particular um, has been so adversely affected. And so I'm just curious, you know, what has your experience been um, in this uh, pandemic? And has that sort of changed the way that you're approaching your art? It has made me look back at everything. And, you know, I, I grew up in Southeast Minnesota. Um, you know, I would go to Minneapolis a lot. You know, I and I have friends that live west of Hiawatha, and there was just so much to re-examine looking back in my life, how I acted, how people I knew acted, the community that I grew up in, and how this state as a whole, there's this idea that um, like non-confrontation is a virtue. Mm. And that- Like for real, it's like- yeah. <laughs> It's and so that, confusing to me. And to, <laughs> and to finally have that thrust in their faces mm -hmm. that you can't ignore this, that this ignoring it doesn't make it go away, that you can't remove yourself from this and you're trying to remove yourself from it or not talk about the difficult things, et cetera, et cetera, is only making it worse, a lot worse. Yeah. And it's been, it's been really interesting to see Minnesota and all the, the cacophony of white Minnesotans that I know have to examine this and have to deal with it. And, you know, a lot of them are starting to, at the very least, break down that wall of, well, I talk about it, therefore it doesn't exist. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's interesting because those of us who've spent considerable amounts of time in the DMV are probably some of the most uh, conflict forward people that you will meet, like the idea of not having a conversation because it's hard is, is totally foreign to me, right? And, and moving, you know, from academia into this kind of a space, um, both in the opera and also in Minnesota, where that isn't quite the mode, has been a, an incredible learning experience. And because I follow you on social media, I feel like I already have a sense of what your answer to this is going to be. But why do you think that the opera in particular is so behind the curve with regards to progressive issues? And what, what can and should activism look like in a space like the one we currently inhabit? You know, it's interesting because for, in, in some ways, at least prior to the discussions that we've been having recently, opera was maybe ahead of the curve for some time, but uh, maybe because it's nonprofit, maybe it's because, you know, a, there's a lot of old guard that's gatekeeping, running everything, kind of dictating policy. Um, it's not, times are changing very fast. And Hollywood keeps up with it in some, some ways just because it's profitable. You know, that rep mm -hmm. representation right now is selling. Mm -hmm. um, and I would love to see opera get on board with that. Mm -hmm. I think we are at the precipice of something where we're going to need to start bringing in new money to the industry. Yeah. And I think the panacea to that 
is representation oriented. Um, why we need, there, there's a whole generation of wealthy people of color coming up <laughs> that are gonna wanna spend money people that look like them and to secure interests for those who look like them to create another generation or to create the first generation of BIPOC excellence and why why would they spend any money to enter a hostile environment why would they spend any amount of money to try and enter an environment that's going to look at them funny why are you here without something substantial in return and I think that that something is representation. And I think that will pave the way for the future of the industry, pave the way for greater equity uh, and just make, a, in some cases, a tired old art form new again. Absolutely, there's such a, and I, and I never, I never say it to, to say, you know, um, we should change because money, but there is a good, there's an amazing business case for it. <laughs> like there really, there just really is. I think the, I mean, Black Panther and the release of that film will always be the I mean... biggest C moment for everybody. <laughs> like the yeah, most total. popular film worldwide. Like, mm -hmm. and it, what it took was like fully investing in a whole crew of Black artists from, wardrobe to mm -hmm. director and it's like see what we can do when we're when we're well well resourced and and everyone loved it you know everyone was whether whether you personally relate or whether you're black whether you're african or not everyone was like this is amazing because it's genuine and it's it makes this group of people feel proud and i want to see that for everybody else yeah. as well like it mm -hmm. We, I, I think we take for granted how much we want to connect with each other's stories too. Like I want to see different stories and I, they don't necessarily have to be black. I want to see all marginalized groups <laughs> properly represented. I would pay money. This is, and there are multiple people saying here, we have, we have the money. Just, <laughs> just give us the story. So yeah. yeah, you're so right. And I, I am also curious about just what do you what do you see else that like classical music organizations could be doing besides just the just the programming or um, you know what what we see on stage I guess or what you know audiences see you may have heard our our episode we were talking all kinds of things about process. And I wanna hear your thoughts on that. Like what else can, especially people in our position as arts administrators, what we can be doing? Um, one thing that I have been discussing quite a bit is um, the idea of people who debut at a house in race specific casting. Um, you know, we're seeing representation oriented media, media being a huge seller uh, for companies. You know, Porgy and Bess is the, the show, I think, to add performances and first show to add performances and how long at the Met. Mm. That is making them bundles of money. And it boggles my mind that Freddie Ballantine can make such a splash as Sport in Life and they are not announcing that he's coming back for something immediately. That, I've been that, wondering. <laughs> that does not, Him specifically. Yeah, that does not compute with me at all. This guy is a star. 
So why why isn't he headlining something immediately after? They brought Akhenaten back like that. Mm-hmm. You know, there's there's the power to do it. Um, and we've heard so many stories from all sorts of singers of color about getting pigeonholed in representation, uh, in race specific casting. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Freddie is so much, you know, he's great at sport in life, but he's also so much more. Like he sings Don Jose, he sings all sorts of stuff and he sings it wonderfully. Um, but when you debut at a house and your performance is your best audition, so to speak, um, and they only see you as something very limited, be it in uh, new repertoire that doesn't necessarily showcase legato singing even, or something that's in English so they can't comprehend, you know, a person of color singing Italian well or whatnot, or it's like a really weird stylized show. So you might not be able to show off your acting chops and whatnot and how work at these houses is so important because if you sing Don Jose at the Met, you will never ever have to audition for Don Jose ever again. Um, And if somebody has been clearly deemed worthy of singing a leading role at a major house like that, um, why are they not also worthy of immediately turning around and singing like Marcello, Rodolfo, that kind of thing, something that people debut in all the time that you come in for a week and boom. And that's to kind of get them acclimated to a house. You know, um, so, and the the traps that come with that. um, That's a big thing I would love to see is when somebody comes in to a house, you know, like let's say uh, I debuted at Opera Theater of St. Louis in in the show An American Soldier, which, um, you know, was much lower than a lot of the stuff that I've done. It's in English, very loud. Um, In a lot of ways, it's dissonant. There is some really beautiful singing in moments as well but it's very very specific and it's very hard to get an idea of what else could this person do with something that's so specialized um and it's not i don't think it should be the artist's uh responsibility to display that i would also be a good ferrando in a highly special find a way to somehow do that during a highly specialized show um, that when people essentially are doing a favor, being a part of something that they can be pigeonholed in, should they not also be given an opportunity uh, to showcase themselves beyond something so hyper-specific? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm just curious, you know, in your experience um, so far, have you encountered any houses that are maybe not getting it right, but approaching <laughs> getting it right. And what are some of the things um, about those houses that you have appreciated? Minnesota Opera is getting it right. Oh, wow. I, I'm, no, I'm, I'm, I'm I didn't, I didn't mean for it. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to say yes. <laughs> you really don't. You don't have to. That's very nice. <laughs> but look, look at those cast lists. You know, you look like, let's say, let's take, take even the fix, you know? It's a very specific era of baseball and there are all sorts of people of color in it. Why? Because you can. World hasn't ended, you know, <laughs> great <singer. laughs> um, You still told a great story, you know, things like some, I, I see, I remember seeing like the Traviata dress a couple years ago and thinking, wow, this is such a beautifully diverse stage. 
There are people of all sorts of different looks and all sorts in leading roles, supporting roles in the chorus, but you see different looking people all over the place. God, God, this is so beautiful. This is, that's what I want it to look like. Um, And, you know, I've encountered some places that, you know, will hide behind this idea of artistic discretion you know like there will be we want to be on the forefront we want to make a difference blah 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 blah. they're like well how about you know some even like compulsory hiring you know let's let's try and check as many boxes as possible it's like well you know we still need to maintain artistic discretion but you know who's checking off as many boxes as possible minnesota opera you look at every single one of those cast lists you know you're trying to get a whole variety of people in every show it appears to me because they're great artists. And for some of these little semantic traditional things, who cares? World's not gonna end, opera's not gonna end. And sometimes every now and then too, like you can get some real magic, mm-hmm. you know? Um, sorry to talk about myself, but I, I do think this is a good example. Like when I was casting Candide, it, it was a predominantly white cast. And not only was it white, like there were a lot of tall people there too. So if, <laughs> the moment I turn around my blue jacket, as like, you know, the short yellow kid in a sea of white, you know, you automatically have an other there. You don't need to spend 15 minutes talk, explaining the world that you're in, showing why this person is an other. They're just immediately, the moment they show their face, an other. And there is also a lot of ground artistically, I think, uh, organizations could be making by viewing some things in these ways. You know, it can up, really up the ante for some of these stories. Um, there's something incredibly profound. I think we would all agree about seeing people of color fall in love with each other on an opera stage because we never see it. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yep. Just the mere Absolutely. fact that two people of color encounter each other and fall in love is such a profound thing. Even in La Boheme, which we've all seen so many times, you know, it's completely different through that lens. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, and I remember that, um, that production of Traviata so well, because I just remember, you know, we were going through the, the diversity charter and, you know, getting that, you know, you know, talking to the staff, talking to the board, talking to leadership and getting all of these questions. And we ended up putting that artistic statement of belief in there. And I think part of that was because of Traviata, um, because it's like, it just makes everything so much richer. It doesn't take away from anything. It just makes everything just more abundant and beautiful and lovely and, why not? Like nobody's ever like given me a convincing reason why not other than like, you know, maintaining white supremacy. Um. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's funny you mentioned the the fix also because I remember uh, Jasmine Habersham being in that Mm -hmm. and like, 
even though she wasn't like the lead of the story, she was a lead. And I was just like, oh, it's so nice to watch a black woman in love. And it's not about her dying at the end. Mm -hmm. And it's not about anybody getting shot or, oh, she stays alive through the whole thing, like, and is shown into the supportive, loving relationship. Oh, how refreshing. (laughs) Yeah, we love, we love to see it. More of that, please. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the power that being able to see that kind of representation has for people in their formative years is it's kind of unparalleled, right? And you know, of course, I I haven't been here to see a lot of these Minnesota opera productions, but while I was in New York, you know, in high school, actually seeing Harolyn Blackwell as Conagonda in Candide on Broadway was a true revelation for me. And and it's something that, you know, 25 years later, like is still very present in my mind, not just because of the the caliber of her singing, which, you know, I, I mean, in a Broadway show, it was just, it was stunning on top of everything else, but just the fact that it was a thing happening. Similarly, remembering um, Jesus Garcia, and Janina Burnett and some other folks in the Basler and La Boheme uh, about five or six years later, it was just an instance of, look how good this is, right? You heard this. <laughs> there should not be an ongoing question about what we do when we have these opportunities, right? And it's taken quite a while for the conversation even to feel like it's picking up momentum, but at least on the end of the administrative side and having actually the benefit of having some colleagues who have similar roles that uh, Rocky and Paige and I have at other companies, it means that some of these conversations are going to be able to happen. Who knows where some companies are going to land and the reasons for them electing not to make some of these choices, but I do hope that we see more boldness in casting and more embracing of this is the magic that happens when we just give in to the fact that, you know, talent has been democratically distributed across the world. Opportunity has not been. And that's the thing that I think we really have to push back on. And I think it will yield dividends. I have no, we've seen it already. Yeah, it will absolutely. yield dividends. Absolutely. Well, Andrew, I think that that is a wonderful note to go out on, hopeful. I believe it'll yield dividends as well. So (laughs) do you want to let everyone know, like, do you have anything coming up that you'd like to promote or your social media channels? Where can people follow you and hear your your beautiful music? (laughs) (laughs) I've got a Facebook fan page, but you know, like everyone, we're just kind of waiting for things to uh, reopen. I've got Mm -hmm. a nice busy spring, but just kind of biding my time till then. Nice. Well, everyone go follow Andrew Stenson on Facebook and uh, make sure to watch out for this spring when you can hopefully go see him live. (laughs) Um, So thank you so much for being with us, Andrew. We really appreciate it. Pleasure's all mine. You're all wonderful human beings. Thank you so much for the work that you all are doing and for making a big freaking difference. Oh, stop. Thank you. Happy Juneteenth. Yes, happy Juneteenth. (laughs) And we'll be right back.
right, and we are back. Thank you once again to the incomparable Andrew Stenson for uh, that wonderful chat. And even though we are on vacation, we, <laughs> we would be remiss if we did not leave you with a pure black joy, a PB&J, a little snack for your soul to take you into the weekend. And this, you know, we've, 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 we've figured, you know, we've got the Olympics coming up. It is one of my favorite times of the year. Every two years, for whatever reason, all of a sudden I'm into the shot put and handball and in the winter, like the luge and <laughs> the, <laughs> the double luge. <laughs> but, you know, I guess this will just be like our little Olympic special because there are just, you know... Watching the trials a couple of weeks ago, there are just some black people out here just doing it. And we just want to yes. shout out all those people. So, you know, the People People magazine actually did a spread on the, the black women on various Olympic uh, teams. I get teams or category fields? Teams, Genres? I think is right. I think, okay. I think so. Okay. I, I, Sports ball is not my forte. It, <laughs> you would never be able to tell the genetic stock from which I come from the ways that I have rejected anything related to sports. But I do jump on this Olympic bandwagon every couple of summers. And Although I, I will say that I have won the Minnesota Opera Fantasy Football League twice now. Oh, wow. <laughs> but that's just because I'm psychotically competitive. <laughs> and I will so be, maybe you're into sports those few months out of the year yes yes <laughs> and i'll be impressed with that even if i don't know what it means to be a fantasy football like oh, don't worry about yeah. it I, I i i i could explain it to you but i kind of couldn't <laughs> but it was kind of great to like look at that spread in people and see actually that there were so many black women on teams that I was not anticipating, right? Like I, I knew about a couple of swimmers. I certainly knew about Simone Biles. You, you, I mean, she's the greatest thing since sliced bread, clearly. Amazing. Yeah. But it was also kind of, you know, amazing to be like, oh, we also do rugby. Like there was a whole <laughs> lot of takeaways from that that just let me know that, you know, black excellence is alive and well and living in places if you know to look. So I'm inspired now to look a lot more into sports and just see what we're out here doing and, and see all the records we're breaking and, and start celebrating some people who are doing things every bit as a, as obscure as singing Carmen and Aida variously around the country. We can celebrate this too and, and really take some time to, to, you know, encourage these people with these incredible accomplishments coming out of rugby and swimming and all kinds of other things that I know nothing of. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely, because, I mean, it's just amazing. Like, one of the things about the Olympics that gets me is always when it's like, you know, like, they grew up in a small town in Iowa and they had to, like, sell their shoes to get equipment <laughs> for fencing and the, the family sold the farm so that she could go to gymnastics school or whatever. <laughs> but like, you know, thinking about like, you know, all of these black athletes and just the way that they have just 
come from so many different places around the country and you like we all know what it is to no matter where you're from to be black in America you know the particular struggles <laughs> that that can come with and the particular hurdles <laughs> see what I did there hurdles <laughs> that you have to jump over um, and so it's just it's it's amazing like when you look at somebody you know like Simone Manuel who's you know swimming the the mm-hmm. 50 free or Allison Felix five That's five crazy. five Olympic teams now you know, and just had a baby and it was complicated and she was able to come back from that and like, you know, run her way back onto another (laughs) Olympic team. (laughs) It's just incredible. It really is. And I don't know, did you see that, the woman, I don't remember what her name is, Christina. Ah, shoot. Um, But she qualified in the hurdles. And she was wearing little Doritos, Cool Ranch Doritos bags as earrings. And I was oh like, girl, gosh. yes. <laughs> I am here for winning in style. I love real. it. <laughs> but speaking from, you know, like people from small towns, not that my town is small and all that, but also shout out to Donald Scott, also black and... He uh, qualified. He is the track and field coach um, for the high school that I went to. So, so crazy. That is so yeah, amazing. Lincoln High School in Ypsilanti, Michigan. So shout out to him. Um, like, can you imagine yeah. if your coach or your PE teacher was like an Olympian and it's like climb the rope? Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but that's another cool thing about the Olympics is just that like it covers so many sports and people from all over the world that there could be somebody from just like your little town that you think is random mm-hmm. who makes it to the Olympics. Like it's supposed to represent the whole world. So that was cool. That was really cool. I'm happy for him. That's so cool. It's like my friend, um, my friend Maureen, she went to high school with the dude that won The Bachelorette last season, but I guess it's not really the same. Well, we hope you all enjoy the Olympics. It's going to be amazing. Super two weeks of, of super fun. Um, and shout out to all of those people. I hope all y'all get y'all's medals um, and represent us. And thank you so much. Um, and we're going to go back to our vacation. <laughs> uh, real quick, you know, shout out to the Nat Ministry. You know, go follow them. <laughs> Anti-hustle culture. <laughs> Let's all just go rest for a minute. And uh, we will be back in two weeks with another fabulous show. Um, as usual, rate, review, subscribe, all of that good stuff. Share us with your friends. And uh, write in at uh, the score at mnopera.org. Um, and until then, do y'all have any words of wisdom to leave us with? I'll take that as a no. Because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we need to rest. Because we need to go back to the couch or to the beach or wherever we are. <laughs> I was going to say, go, go read the Nat Ministry. <laughs> yes, yes. Pour, yourself, pour yourself a glass of wine, run a hot bath. <laughs>
Go read the Nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> All right, y'all. We'll see you in two weeks. Bye. Bye, everybody.